So if you were to finish this sentence, I wonder what you would say. Jesus is. How would you finish that sentence? Who is Jesus to you? If you're a Christ follower, maybe you'd say something like this. Jesus is my saviour. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my redeemer. And if you're not a Christian, maybe you'd say something like, Jesus was a good man, he was a wise teacher. And if we're honest, maybe we also have some of these moments where we find ourselves with these thoughts, uh, Jesus is unrealistic in, in his, his demands of me, Jesus is too hard for me to follow. Uh, Jesus is someone, maybe even we have these moments where we say Jesus is someone who doesn't really care. Now, this morning, we're going to hear from people who completed the Jesus is sentence by saying this. Jesus is out of his mind and Jesus is is possessed by an evil spirit. And so just so that we're clear, these people who said that Jesus is crazy, that Jesus is local, that he deserves to be locked up in a first century padded cell. These people who said this were none other than his own flesh and blood, his family. And the ones who said that he was possessed by Satan himself uh, were none other than the pastors of the time, the religious leaders. And this is, these are not the best reviews for the Jesus that we worship. Jesus is out of his mind. He's crazy. And Jesus, he is possessed by the prince of the demons. Last time uh, I... I I spoke on Mark, we learned that Jesus wants to turn couch critics and fair-weather fans into faithful followers. This is what the Christian life is. He's not interested in, uh, in how many people will stay where things are comfortable and where there is no cost or hardship to them, but he's interested in those who have the gleam of adventure in their eye and the spark of obedience in their eyes, who say to him, Lord, call me to yourself and I will choose to count the cost and I will follow you. You see, the, the, the whole Christian life is one of being called to Jesus and being sent out by him. That's what we learned last time. And though this life is rewarding and it's full of meaning, this life is not easy as the disciples are about to find out. Let's turn to Mark chapter 3 verse 20. Mark chapter 3 verse 20. The last time we, we, uh, we saw that they had a massive crowd on the side of the lake and out of that massive crowd he, he called those to him that he wanted and out of those that he called to him that he wanted he chose 12. So, so this has just happened. Um, they are new in the job. It's their first week on the job maybe and uh, this is what happens. Mark chapter 3 verse 20. It says, Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd, a, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So, so these men had just started following him, and already they are run off their feet. They're exhausted, and they don't even have time to pop into a Timmy's for a farmer's breakfast wrap. And on top of that, Jesus' mum, Mary, appears with a couple of his brothers, and they're ready to take Jesus away by force, to grab hold of him and to remove him. 
And at this, so, so at this moment, when, when, G, when Jesus' mother Mary and his brothers think of Jesus, a thought pops into their head. And this thought tells us much more about them than it does about Jesus Christ. So this morning, we are going to hear some radically different views of Jesus than we would usually hear on a Sunday morning. But my main point is this, is that whatever comes into our head when we think about Jesus tells us much more about us than it does about him or here. Or or this truth, which is from a man called A.W. Tozer, he says, what comes into my mind when I think about God, when I think about Jesus, is the most important thing about me. You see, whatever we think of Jesus, and he knows it, he doesn't go into an existential crisis every time we have a doubt or we think something negative about him. His, his, his identity isn't wrapped up in your opinion of him. He doesn't wring his hands and wonder how he can get back into your friendship circle or how you, or how he can get you to like his posts again. Because Jesus knows who he is. He's secure in his opinion of himself and in his father's opinion of him. And so our opinion of Jesus tells us a lot more about us than it does about him. So what did Jesus's family think about Jesus at this moment in time? They said, they were thinking, they said he's out of his mind. His mother Mary and his brothers were outside this house over in Capernaum and the the crowd is heaving inside. It's hot and it's sweaty and they want to, to force their way in and to take him away by force. Now it's safe to assume that they were probably at this moment uh, trying to protect their family's reputation. Uh, no one wanted really to be that family in the town that had that weird uncle, the one that said weird stuff about forgiving sins and who would do the most weird stuff at the most inappropriate times. No one wanted to be that kid in school who kept hearing after uh, week after week, your uncle Jesus is weird. Your uncle Jesus is weird. And so the family comes to take charge of him. They come to shut him down and to lock him up. And I can see them walking up to Jesus like he's a wild animal and saying, shh, it's okay, Jesus. Everything's going to be fine. You just come with us. Shh, it's okay. And meanwhile, they're trying to hide their straight jacket and the restraints behind their backs. This sense of overwhelming family shame at having someone like Jesus in their family overcame um, their ability to see all that God was doing through Jesus. You see, others saw a miracle worker and the demons saw God's son. But all Jesus' family could see at this moment was a liability and an embarrassment. They wanted to save him from himself. What they thought about Jesus at this moment tells us a lot more about them than it does about him. We will find out a bit later what Jesus' response to them was. But let's move on to the next group, the teachers of the law. Chapter 3, Mark 3.22 says this. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. And so Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? Now, I've read lots of historical fiction and fantasy novels, so I'm quite well acquainted, at least 
on pages with you know fight scenes and the battle scenes and the strategies which they use and one of the key strategies in a battle scene is something known as the pincer maneuver and what the pincer maneuver is is that you is that you have the cavalry you know you know the men on the horses and they're riding along and they split into two groups and one comes in from this side and one comes in from that side and that and this army which are trying to fight them has to split their forces they're facing this way they're facing this way and if this this army who are attacking can can, can split their forces um then they've won the day because they're going to have to fight on two fronts. And so in our first pass, in our passage here today, the first, um, the first group of this pincer formation is Jesus' family. And on the other flank, coming around the other side, uh, who have come all the way from Jerusalem to investigate this reckless rabbi are these leaders. One of them is trying to take charge of Jesus. And the other one is trying to undermine him. One says he's crazy and the other says that he has an evil spirit in him. The old one too, he's crazy, he has an evil spirit. Now verse 23 tells us that Jesus called them over to him um, and he began to speak to them in parables. Actually, first of all, he poses to them a logical question. And he says this, how can Satan drive out Satan? Why would Satan cast out the demons from someone who he ordered to go into them in the first place? Why would he do that? This would be like maybe Hitler ordering the storming of the beaches at Normandy in order to fight against himself. This would be like someone going hunting and constantly blowing an air horn to save the lives of the deer. When I was a kid, my older brother and I would grab the other one's hands and we would try to punch, we would try to grab the hand and punch them in the face and then we'd say, stop punching yourself, stop punching yourself. And usually because he's 18 months older than me, he would be the one that would win. But now I'm the father, so I get to do this with my daughters and it's <laughs> lots of fun. Well... What these people from Jerusalem were, 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 were suggesting, it's like Satan is punching himself in the face. He's shooting himself in the foot. It makes no tactical sense at any place, in any time, in any situation. What they're suggesting makes no sense at all. And so, and so Jesus continues to explain this message to whoever's listening. Verse 4, 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand his end is come. You see, civil war, it doesn't build a kingdom. It ruins a kingdom. Conflict within a family, it never builds a family. It always destroys a family. This is why we say things like, you know, when, when we're together, we stand. When we are divided, we fall. And so what's interesting, though, is that these leaders from the capital city, they recognize that miracles are happening, okay? In the past, they said that miracles weren't happening. Now they're saying that miracles are happening, so they've conceded that. But now they're saying that they are satanic miracles. They aren't Jesus miracles, they aren't aren't God miracles, they are satanic miracles. So how does Jesus explain these 
miracles. If he's not getting his power to cast out demons from, from Beelzebul, who's an archdemon, if this isn't the source of his power, then how do you explain what is going on here? And Jesus explains by means of a parable, which is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Verse 27. He says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. And here, maybe you don't realize it when you first read it, but here we have one of the most wonderful and heroic images of Jesus that we have in Scripture. You see, Satan is the strong man, and Jesus wants to break into his house. He wants to commit a home invasion against Satan himself. Jesus wants to plunder his goods and and steal them off for his own purposes. But in order to do that, he has to tie him up. He has to bind him up first. He has to bind up the strong man. And so what Jesus is saying here is that, is that my power does not come from Satan, my power overcomes Satan. He's saying, in effect, that Satan is hogtied and he's thrown in the closet. Satan is alive still, but he's tied up. And now Jesus is plundering Satan's house. And so the question then is, well, what is he stealing? What is he going into Satan's house and plundering? What is he stealing from Satan? And this is where it gets exciting for you and for me, because the goods that Jesus has been plundering from the strong man's house, from Satan's house, are human souls. He's been leading them out of the strong man's house, out into the sunshine. They've been under the rule of Satan for way too long. This horrendous and tyrannical taskmaster, one who promises much, but he actually gives nothing. One who rules his kingdom by fear and by bondage. He's, um, he is, he's known in the Bible as the prince of lies. He's known as a man-eating lion. And so Jesus has now got one over him and he's tied him up. He then, he then, he then creeps into the house and he learns how to take off the motion sensor security system. He takes it offline. He then climbs over the wall. He then knocks out the security guards. He snips a hole through the razor wire fence. He then figures out what the security pass key is. He, he's worked out a way to get past all the biometrics. Uh, scanners and like the leader of a crack SWAT team he's located all of the prisoners in the dungeon and he's leading them out one by one out of the kingdom of darkness and into freedom listen to how Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 uh, explains this Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says this for he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And then it goes on to say in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the language that's been used. It's a rescue. It's a snatch and grab from, from darkness into the kingdom of Jesus. This is redemption. This is the forgiveness of sins. You see, Satan fools us into thinking that what we need is freedom from God and his rules. But what God offers us is so much better. He lets us have the chance to, to, and, uh, to experience the freedom of being who God created us to be. 
Satan's horrendous and macabre version of freedom is enslavement of the deepest kind. Like he's, he's, he's like a shadowy criminal who intentionally gets someone else on drugs so that they will do anything for the next high. That's how Satan operates. Now I know that there are days when I'm tempted to indulge uh, in a bit of the old apparent freedom under Satan's rule, and there are and there are days when I when I when, when I choose to go there, when I when I choose to, in one sense, climb under that fence and experience it again. But it's on those days that I feel the least free. It's on those days uh, when I when I want freedom from God's gracious rule um, that I. That, that I feel that the most enslaved, and of course, what I'm talking about here is sin, when in my mind I choose to wander the old neighborhoods, the old neighborhoods of greed and lust and anger and pride. And I try to, in one sense, of course, uh, this isn't happening, but in one sense I try to sneak back under that fence and creep back just for a moment. But this is not freedom. And this is why Jesus Christ has come and he breaks down the doors and he shows us that there is true freedom. He comes to plunder the strong man. Now, as a church, we are, um, we, we are partners with missionaries called Matthew and Marie McCullough. And they're working over in Cambodia with this group called Hard Places Community, which is a massive um, real-time, real-life example of Jesus plundering the house of the strong man. You see, they rescue people, particularly men who are enmeshed in the flesh trade, and they show them in such a practical way through jobs, through hope, through support, through counseling, that there is freedom. They are literally Jesus's hands and feet in plundering the house of the strong man. So we're proud that we are partnering with them. And what I want you to hear now is the words of one of the lads that they've rescued. He says this, When I enter the hard places community, I feel safe and loved. And these are the words of of a man called Savon, who's a local Cambodian who's working with HPC, Hard Places Community. He says this, I I have a desire to see men become the men they've always wanted to become. I have a passion to journey with the men I work with in healing, in restoration, and in empowerment. I long for them to encounter a father that loves them, that calls them to, to purpose and belonging, and who welcomes them home with open arms. And in May of this year, this is fresh off, off the press, they, they posted this breaking news update. Five children out and free. And they said this, of this article on Facebook, in the past month alone, we've been able to get five children out and into safe places. Whatever that means, that has been happening. This is the real time we are like plundering of the house of the strong man. And just as Jesus brought about their freedom, so he longs to bring you freedom and to bring freedom to everyone. So, But the question is, what does this freedom look like? Verse 28, Mark 3.28. This is what this freedom looks like. It says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander 
that they utter. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. This freedom looks like freedom and a second chance from every sin that you've done and every word which you've ever said. Everything is absolutely covered. This is freedom in the truest possible sense. This is the freedom that Satan never wants us to know, but that Jesus sacrificed himself so that he could bring us. Now, I want to pause here because it's too easy to move straight on to the next phrase. But this, this, this one phrase is too good for us just to skip on by. Verse, because what verse 28 shows us is the scope of sin that is covered by the good news of Jesus' complete payment. It says people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander that they utter. So have you sinned? Have you slandered? Have you done something that you think, there's no way I can go back from that? Have you ever said something that, that, that you feel has sullied your soul, that, that, that you feel you can never be clean from? This verse is here to show you that Jesus has paid the price and settled every debt. So if you are following Jesus as his follower, then he's already met with Almighty God and he's already told him that you are good, that you are in. This is the freedom that Jesus leads us into. Whatever this sin is that plagues you, whatever the memory is that haunts you, if you place your trust in Jesus, it's absolutely covered. This little phrase in Mark chapter two verse, Mark chapter three verse 28 is a massive, gigantic, humongous, oversized, eight course meal of solid, trustworthy hope that people can be forgiven of all their sin. Amen. Verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So after this massive encouragement that we should be reminding ourselves of every day that every sin is absolutely covered, we seem we, or we have what seems to be some sort of a caveat, um, some small print, and it's something to do with blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And I know that, that this verse has caused many, many faithful followers of Christ times of worry and anxiety. People have called this sin the unforgivable sin. And it sounds ominous, and it sounds scary, and it sounds even more ominous and scary because we're not sure what it is. So how do you avoid it if you don't know what it is? It's like someone saying to you, you will never fall down and break your neck as long as you avoid the open manhole. But it's pitch dark and you don't have a torch, you don't have a flashlight. So for someone to say to you, avoid the open manhole is not super helpful. Where is the manhole? I can't see the manhole. If I can't see the manhole, how can I avoid the manhole that will lead to me breaking my neck? So the more helpful thing would be for someone to say to you, avoid the open manhole, and to help you avoid it, you have to see it. And in order to see it, here's a flashlight that you can shine and you can use. And so let's turn our flashlight on this so-called unforgivable sin. Or let me word it like this. What would it actually take for you to remain unforgiven by the God who promises to forgive every sin and slander. What would it take for you to remain unforgiven by the, by the God who promises to forgive every sin and every slander? And the answer is simply this, by rejecting the means 
of the forgiveness. It's like someone saying to you, okay, the bad news is that you have cancer, but the good news is that it's 100% curable. Unless you choose not to follow the advice of your physician, then the death rate is 100%. In order to, to experience the, the cure of the cancer, you have to embrace the means of the cure. There's this Christian thinker called D.A. Carson who says this uh, of verse 29. He says that they are cutting themselves off from the only source of, of forgiveness by rejecting Jesus. So, so, so by saying um, in, verse, in verse 30, when they say he has an impure spirit, in, in, instead of having the Holy Spirit, what they are saying in effect is that Jesus is damaged goods. He is unclean himself. And if they believe that Jesus is unclean, then how will they ever trust him for salvation? They are signing their own death warrant. They are rejecting the, the cure of cancer. So if, if we were to take this, this analogy of the house that I was sharing with you earlier, the, so these teachers of the law are sat there in the dungeon. Uh, they're shackled up to the wall. They're imprisoned by Satan in the house of this strong man. And this room is full of people like them who are chained up. In fact, everyone who's born into this world is born into this shackled room, in this dark room, in the house of the strong man. And so they are there as well. And then Jesus breaks through the wall and he starts liberating prisoners. And the teachers see this. He, they see the blind seeing and they see the lame walking and they see those who are possessed of demons being liberated. They hear Jesus' message that the kingdom is at hand. Person after person, they watch this happening. They see person after person walking out of the house of the strong man. And finally, Jesus makes it up to them and he says to them, let's go, come on. And he makes to strike off their chains. And just as he's about to, they say, and who are you? You're in league with Satan, aren't you? You aren't the Savior. You aren't the Messiah. We'd rather sit here in the dark than have you rescue us. And at that moment, they've placed themselves beyond salvation because they're rejecting God's means of salvation. This is Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the means of salvation. There's this uh, singer and um, thinker called Michael Card who says this, if a person denies the vehicle of forgiveness, the, the Holy Spirit, he's cut himself off from the possibility of being, being forgiven. And then he, he says this as a great clarifier. It's not the unpardonable sin. It's the sin whereby you place yourself beyond pardon. This is what blaspheming the Holy Spirit means. So let me reword verse 28 and verse 29. It says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever chooses to reject the very means by which God forgives sin, then it's pure logic that they will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. So what comes into the mind of the teachers of the law when they, when they, when they think about Jesus tells us a lot more about them than it does about him. Let's move on to verse 31. It says this, Then Jesus' mother and brother arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him. Picture this in your mind. And they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. 
Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now we've come full circle. His family have been waiting outside and they've been calling to him, Jesus, come home immediately. They want him to return to the steady life of the carpenter and to quit this embarrassing life of roaming around the countryside, drawing all kinds of unwanted attention. They believe he's out of his mind. They want to take charge of him. They want to take him by force. And this message that they are out there worms its way through the crowds to Jesus himself. Hey, Jesus, Mary and the lads are outside. And so Jesus blows away the minds of his listeners by saying, my family are those who do my will. What Jesus is saying here is, hey, I've already tied up the strong man. I'm now here to plunder his household and to break you free of the darkness and the sadness and the hopelessness of Satan's household. And once I've broken you free, I'm not going to leave you on the streets to make your own way to fend for yourself. No way. My father is ready to adopt anyone. In my father's house, there are many rooms. There's room for you and for you and for you. We can be siblings. We can spend time as a family. You can be part of this new family with God as father and with me as brother. You can know the security of of unconditional love. And what is, and Jesus carries on, um, and what is the evidence that shows that you're part of God's family, of my family? Well, you live according to the family rules, the household rules, just like anyone else in the family. And as your your brother, as your big brother, I'll show you how to navigate this new life. There will be some unhelpful habits that you've learned in Satan's household that you need to unlearn, and there will be some good habits that I need to teach you that you can replace those bad habits with. But the main thing is, is that you are home, you are home with me, you are home with God. Mi casa, esu casa. And so at the end of this, of this passage, we're left with three options, three choices. We can be like Jesus' family, Jesus', Jesus biological family, at least through Mary, who, who try to take charge of him. Or we can be like the teachers of the law who try to undermine Jesus. That's, that, that's the second option. First is take charge of him. Second one is to undermine him. Or we can be like those who chose to submit to him. Right at the beginning of this message, I said that whatever comes into our mind when we think about Jesus tells us way more about ourselves than it does about him. And and, and then I quoted A.W. Tozer, who said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So, So my question for you here this morning is this. How do you complete the sentence, Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? Is he crazy? Is he possessed by evil? Or is he your brother? What I want to leave with you is this thought. Yes, it's true that whatever you think of when you think of Jesus tells you a lot more about you than it does about Jesus. But here's another truth. What comes into Jesus' mind when he thinks about you is all you need to know about yourself And if you aren't in Christ here today, if you're still uh, there in the house of the strong man, let me tell you how Jesus sees you. He sees you as someone who's chained up in your mind, someone who's enslaved, maybe even without knowing it, to unhealthy patterns of sin, someone who's trapped in the household of Satan, uh, the strong man. 
And through what took place on the cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus has tied up the strong man. He's proved that Jesus is the stronger man. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, verse 7, John the Baptist says, One is going to come after me, one who is more powerful than I. So Jesus is stronger than any patterns of sin or any patterns of generational uh, unhealthiness or abuse. Jesus is stronger than any darkness you have or any secrets that you hold. Jesus is stronger than any shame you feel or any guilt that you experience. Jesus is stronger than any any stain on your life or any shackles that are currently binding you. As we will be singing now, it says this, there is no shadow, there is, there is no shadow you won't light up. There's no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. Let, let me say that again. There's no shadow you won't light up. There's no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down. There's no lie you won't tear down coming after me. This is Jesus, the plunderer of the strong man's house. And Jesus is still plundering Satan's dungeon for human souls. And as they step blinking into the sunlight of freedom, not sure what the future is, Jesus says, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven of all their sin and every slander that they utter. Come home with me, my dad has the adoption papers ready because Jesus wants us not just to be a faithful follower but he wants us to be precious family so are you a child of God are you a brother or a sister of Jesus